Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman, your host from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. For those of you who don't know Carl, he is the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, as well as a former writer for the Wall Street Journal and 538.com, and um, one of the most tennis-obsessed and knowledgeable people I know, so always good to have him with us. And Carl, I know you're as excited as I am for the first of this week's comeback, which is Roger Federer back to number one. Before we start talking about that, I want to give you my, my overview for this episode, which is that it's all about comebacks. The first of which is that we are actually back after a little bit more than a month. Um, they counted us out, Jeff, but we came back. They, they counted us out, all three of our regular listeners. They didn't think we'd be back, but, but here we are. And, Last last season, one of the big threads running through a lot of tennis topics was all the injuries, all the players who missed a lot of time, and obviously there's there's comebacks on different time scales. But a lot of those guys, guys and girls, actually coming back now. Um, Roger Federer played a full season or close last year, but he finally completed this comeback, winning the Australian Open again, just winning Rotterdam today, yesterday. Uh, and back to number one. So, Carl, let's start with, with Roger Federer's comeback. He's played a, a somewhat unusual season for someone to make it to number one. He totally skipped the clay courts last year. Um, we just tallied before we started recording. He's played 13 events over the last 52 weeks, including Rotterdam and Dubai last year. So, so Carl, do you think there's some there's some insight here to other players who are getting older, maybe, or even even younger players whose bodies aren't going to hold up, like the Milos Raonic's of the world? Like, do you think this is this is something that we're going to see more of in the future? Players whittling down their schedule to the absolute minimum, like Federer has. I think some will try. I always wonder when Federer does something, whether it's a template or it's a Federer-only type thing. And whether or not he is singular generally, lots of people seem to have different approaches to what is the best way to come back and what is the best way to kind of stay in shape, stay in good tennis form. And he seems fine with not playing tournaments and, and maybe training, but also maybe traveling and doing all the Federer things that you get to do when you're Roger Federer, like media opportunities and traveling the world and just being, you know, basking in the love of people all over, which he seems to love to do. And for other players, it may just not work as well. But it could also say something about his resources. Maybe we will find out after he retires the extent to which he has a team beyond the team we already know of that is optimizing on what is the best surface, what are the best draws, what are the best things for him to do between tournaments that we don't ever see or hear about because they're kind of competitive advantages. So to summarize, I think probably some people will try to copy it, but it may not work for everyone. You could have someone who skips a few weeks, enters an event, and because they're rusty, loses in the first round, and that's not a great way to go if every few weeks you're entering events and you're rusty because you're only playing every few weeks. So I, I'm not sure that what works for Federer is going to work for that many other people. Yeah, and I generally agree with you, especially because of the, just the choices that other players have made. It's been the case for a few years now that players have complained about the long season, 
uh, there's been this spate of injuries. It got worse in 2017, but it's been going on for a little while. And the obvious move, in at least at a superficial level, the obvious move is to cut back on your schedule. But very few players have done that, partially because they're always chasing ranking points, but partially because all, all of these players, we have to trust that they mostly know what they're doing. So even though you question somebody like Dominic Team, who's playing however many events he plays, basically not taking any time off at all, most guys are playing every every 500 they can, most 250s on their favorite surface. They're out there every week. And you have to figure they're doing that for a reason. And I think what you point out is exactly right, that if you're not playing competitively, then you've got to be able to keep that level up. And if you're not Roger Federer, then maybe that isn't possible to do. Or at least if you haven't been around the tour for 20 years and as knowledgeable about what it takes to keep your level up as someone like Federer is. Yeah, and even for Federer, there it's not like it wasn't very close to going a different way. I mean, he had some some tough fifth setters, five setters in the Australian Open last year, I think as early as the fourth round. If that had gone a different way, maybe it would have looked like he could have used some more warm-up before going, before going into a Grand Slam. Wimbledon came fairly easy, but he looked rusty at the start of the grass season, losing his first match to Tommy Haas in, in Stuttgart. So it these things can be fine margins, and I think it's always dangerous to draw really broad conclusions from them. But it certainly, on balance, seems to be working well for him. So one thing that definitely worked well for Federer was everything he was doing yesterday against Grigor Dimitrov. He absolutely destroyed him, took less than an hour. You pointed out on Twitter that by dominance ratio, which is a good proxy for just basically how dominant a player is, how many points they win on serve and return, that it was one of his most lopsided finals, and Federer's won 97 of them now. So to put it in the top five or top six is is really saying something. So if if he's that good, if he's if he's this far ahead of most of his competitors, someone like Dimitrov is is increasingly finding himself in the mix in in the last couple of days of every tournament. Then how long do you think Federer can keep number one? I mean he he. He had to fight a pretty hard match against Marin Cilic, who's up to number three. But against some of these other guys, like Dimitrov and, and Goffin, at least when when Goffin is not uh, beating him at the World Tour Finals last year, Federer seems to still be be dominant. So do you think we're going to see Federer end this year as number one? I mean, is there any end in sight to this, this bonus era of Roger Federer? Well... I wouldn't be shocked if he had an injury this year. I mean, it's it's been a pretty good run of health for him for the last 13 months, but he is 36 and a half, and he had health problems in 2016. He had health problems in 2013. He certainly seems to be more blessed with good tennis health than most people, as he is blessed with more tennis everything than most people, but there's certainly a risk that he'll hurt himself. I think there were moments in the Rotterdam run he had, at least where I was nervous that he was pushing himself on certain points in ways that maybe you wouldn't normally do at a 500 event that you're just entering as a wild card. Um, And, you know, it could just take one bad break. I mean, he does have incredible balance and body control and knows himself really well. But I, I think that's probably the biggest threat right now to his number one ranking. The second biggest threat is obviously Rafael Nadal, the guy he just overtook, but only by a small number of points. And 
the way Nadal played last year overall and the small margins by which he lost some big matches, like he could have made a run all the way to the Wimbledon final and who knows, who knows, maybe beaten Federer there. Um, so I certainly think there are risks. It's possible Novak Djokovic or Andy Murray comes back and even has a Federer-like comeback and challenges for number one. But he's got Federer's got to be the favorite. I mean, that, that shouldn't even be a controversial point and probably isn't because he's way out in front right now and all of his top rivals have weaknesses and, and health problems of their own. I, I wouldn't put it as high as 50% or probably even 40%. But yeah, I think, I think he has a pretty good chance, which is, which is wild because he'll be 37 at the end of the year, 37 in four months. Yeah, and I, I just have to point out to our listeners that, that one of Carl's many, uh, many amazing aspects as, as a knowledgeable tennis fan is his, his memory not only of every player's age, but down to the month. So, so I notice you correcting yourself. No, no, no. Federer is not 36, but he's actually 36 and a half. I think you made a similar point about Venus in our last episode. But uh, I can I can barely remember ages within about three years, even for my favorite players. And here you are. Like I think you could reel off the birthday. You could you could tell me who the the former greats are whose birthdays are coming up next week. So, um, or maybe it's just that the live tennis site happens to put ages rounded to the nearest decimal. That may, that may also be a cheat that I use. Oh, that is that is helpful. Yep. And that Live is dash tennis.edu. If any of you aren't using it, it's a great resource. Yeah, .edu. Excuse me. .edu is uh, where you learn how to live tennis. It's great yeah. classes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of Carl's other ventures. Um, but yeah, to do that live, um, the, the live, score, live ranking sites rather are absolutely essential and it, it's hard to imagine A, how we lived without them uh, a few years ago and B, why the ATP and WTA don't just incorporate that into their own sites. And that's conversation for another day, but, but yeah, it's tough to, tough to live without that stuff and it's, it's great that we have the, the age there to consult all the time because, I mean, I, I joke about your precision, Carl, but it's, it is really important stuff, and, and it's especially now when it takes so long for players to really establish themselves, especially on the men's tour. The difference between a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old, for instance, is, is really substantial, um, even if the difference between 25 and 25 and a half is maybe not too great. Um, so, yeah, as, as you point out, the, the battle between Federer and Nadal is going to be interesting for a little while here, and Federer lost almost no matches, certainly almost no consequential matches uh, between right after Dubai when he lost to Donskoy and through up to Canada, really. I mean, he, he, he won Indian Wells, he won Miami, he won Halla, he won Wimbledon, and then he reached the final in, I guess it was Toronto last year, I think, to, to Zverev. So he was he's basically unbeatable, and that's a lot of points for him to defend, to defend with a pretty small margin. So there is a window here in Indian Wells and Miami for something to go wrong for Federer or something to go right for Nadal uh, and for one and two to, to flip. The flip side for Nadal is that he was almost as dominant during the clay court season, and as we're discussing with Federer's curtailed schedule, uh, Nadal has all the pressure on him with all those points to defend, and, and Federer has none. So that'll certainly be interesting to watch. And as you point out, Djokovic and Murray could could put themselves in the mix, although that won't happen until the end of the season. And that seems increasingly unlikely with every week that they don't play. And now Djokovic is 
slated to come back in Madrid or something. Isn't that right? Oh, I didn't realize he was that far away. Wow. Wow. That's okay, a, so that's he, a headline he's, it would be it would be Rafa twenty sixteen like is it no not twenty sixteen twenty thirteen like for Djokovic to actually be challenging for number one despite starting the year so late but yeah who knows do you if you were Federer would you enter Dubai and try to give yourself a little more cushion ahead of the two thousand points from Dean Wells in Miami dropping off yeah I think I would. I mean, he's probably going back there to practice anyway. Um, he's got to go somewhere to practice. And it's, he can do his practice sessions. Yeah, it, 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 there, there's no real loss. I mean, I, I don't think people would would expect a ton from him. I mean, everyone realizes that Dubai is not super important. It's really just a warm-up for him anyway. It's a warm-up for Indian Wells. And it would still give him a solid week before he would have to play a match in Indian Wells, I think. So, yeah. I would, I would do it, would you? I saw the draw, or excuse me, not the draw, we don't know the draw yet, but I saw the entry list, or at least the, the top ten or so ranked players who have entered, and I was shocked at, frankly, how weak the field looked. I mean, maybe some of it is that Djokovic and Murray are out and had habitually played that tournament, so when they were there and in the top four, it would instantly make it a strong field, but I think outside of Dimitrov, there's maybe nobody in the top 15, so actually a softer field at this point than Rotterdam. I mean, Rotterdam had, I think, five of the top ten or thereabouts. And, yeah, between Dubai being basically home courts for Federer and, and an event that he's played so well, it seems like why not? I mean, I agree that if Indian Wells were immediately afterwards, it would be a tougher call. But I think there's a, essentially a week off because Federer's first match wouldn't be till something like Saturday. Uh, and Indian Wells anyway gives players days off after they start playing, and it's kind of a soft start to the tournament because it, they start in the round of 64, so it's generally not an incredibly strong opponent with 32 seeds. So yeah, for all those reasons, sure, why not? And it's it's not like if he did lose early in Dubai, there's reason to think that it would dent his confidence. I mean, he lost that wild match to Donskoy last year and then swept through Indian Wells in Miami. He certainly had some tough matches along the way, but also some fairly easy ones. So, yeah, I, I think he should. I don't know if he will. I, do you think there's a sort of embarrassment about this sense that he kind of vultured the points? I, I've seen that term thrown around in Rotterdam. Like, it, there's something cheap about entering a 500 that if you're doing it to get the number one ranking or to pad your lead? I I don't know because I don't spend time with the players in the locker room, but I can't imagine that vulture is a very common word in discussion between players who are competing for ranking points. And I think that's something that fans talk about because because fans are obsessed with uh, with the matches between the big names, with certain points being cheap, with, with, with all of this kind of greatest of all time debate stuff. And I think the points are points. If you can show up and win a 500, then... You deserve those 500 points. Um, if, if that perception is there, I can't imagine that that's something Federer is worrying about very much. Um, and, and, and you know, one other point that he might, I, I think he's thinking about, even if he's not talking about it openly, is that I think he's now only 12 titles behind Connor's record. Connor's record having been padded with all sorts of relatively weak events back when the tour was a much wilder and, and wider affair. But, yeah, to the extent that Federer, when he's playing this well, can enter a tournament with a weak field, 
that's going to help his chances of, of catching that record, which I didn't think he had a chance at a couple of years ago, but now seems at least possible. Yeah, and if if 500s are cheap, then I think that's the tour's problem or the field's problem, not not something we should use as a criticism for Federer because that's supposed to be a relatively high level of play. And often often it is. There's been some very strong Dubai draws in the past, uh, even very strong Rotterdam draws, stronger than this year's. And, and yes, if, if the ACP can't put solid competition at a 500 against them, then you know, he deserves all these points, cheap or not. I do have to say in passing, since you mentioned how easy the first round is at Indian Wells, that uh, it's impossible not to bring up 2007 when Roger Federer was <laughs> lost in that very first, his first match, not the first round, but the first in, against Guillermo Cañas. Uh, not, the, not the highlight of his career, but it's certainly a match that he should have won, uh, probably favored even more than he will be against whoever the draw throws against him this year in the round of 54. What happened at Federer's next tournament that year? Oh, I can't remember, Carl. What did happen at, at Federer's next tournament that year? He lost to Guillermo Cañas. He did. So, so that is, that's, that's a something for, for Federer's potential opponents to think about is knocking him out of Indian Wells and Miami back to back this year. I think another factor in, in in Dubai being a little weak that we haven't mentioned is the modest rise of Acapulco. Uh, yeah. I don't think that tournament even existed four or five years ago. I, maybe I'm just blanking it out, but it hasn't it hasn't been much of a factor in terms of attracting players for very long. But geographically, it's so much better leading up to Indian Wells with with, with much less jet lag, and it drew a very good field last year with. Djokovic and Del Potro and Kyrgios and Query ended up doing really well last year. But it may well turn out that Acapulco is a more attractive destination for players, even if Dubai is probably offering more money and appearance fees and the like. And that may be draining Dubai in addition to all the other factors that are making the ATP a little weak. Yeah, I was kind of skeptical when Acapulco went to hard courts because I was thought of it as part of the golden swing of clay events in South America, which... I think on this show I've expressed my skepticism of in the past just because of the timing and the calendar, but it makes really good sense in terms of time zones. I mean, you're, I think Acapulco's in the Pacific time zone. If not, it's very close. So you're acclimating and you have to fly a few hours north to get to Indian Wells, but at least you're, you're close. And I think they even try to have identical courts to Indian Wells. I don't think Dubai is thinking that way at all. Yeah, it's interesting to see the challenge and, Part of part of what is different about tennis is that all of these events are competing with each other. Instead of being a unified tour and what's always best for the tour, these events are, are it's really a, a fight to, to get the top players and, and get sponsorship and everything else and, and I'm sure TV rights. So uh, smart move by Acapulco. Yeah, definitely. And, and you're right. I, I had forgotten that it just feels like it's a new tournament because it switched to hard courts and made itself relevant in a different way. The, the Mexican Open has been around since the 90s, and it's been in Acapulco for for several years. Uh, looks like since 2001, so it was a, a clay court tournament for many years. Um, so, so yeah, that's an interesting segue to another sort of comeback this week. Um, you mentioned that the tournaments are competing against each other. It, it's difficult to to get the top players to show up, to get attention from TV rights, from fans, all that stuff. And this past week we had a new tournament 
which in itself, a, a new 250 showing up on the ATP Tour is not that big of a deal. But this year we have the ATP returning to New York, obviously in addition to the U.S. Open. It's, it's In that sense, it's been in New York for a long time. And it's particularly meaningful to us because, Carl, you, you live there. Um, I, I have a lot of ties to New York as well. So I know you were able to go out there, Carl, and talk to, to many people. So how do you feel like it, that worked out with the ATP return to New York with a tour-level event? You know, I think it's, to be fair, it's their first year. So I think it's a little early to judge. There were certainly some disappointments to me, like it just didn't seem that well attended. But, and and also I was a little disappointed that it was at the Nassau Coliseum, which I think is now called NYCB Live, in that while it's a nice venue that's been recently redone, there's no really good way to get there by public transit. And I mean, one of the great ideas of tennis in New York is that you're in a city where you can, you can get places easily without a car. And many people do drive to the U.S. Open, but you can take the subway or Long Island Railroad there. Uh, I took Long Island Railroad basically to a cab because I was told that was the best way. There is a bus, but it comes something like every hour and connecting to it is not a sure thing. And, and the whole Coliseum is surrounded by a giant parking lot and, in addition to there being certain symbolism there, it also makes it almost impossible to figure out where you are and try to find your car or find your way in. It, it's just not – it's called the New York Open, but it doesn't have that New York feel to me of the best New York sporting events. On the other hand, like I said, it is a beautiful new renovated arena. I like the black courts. I think they were somewhat controversial, but I think it gave it a distinct look, and I like the visibility of the ball on the black courts. And – the sight lines were good. The the sound was good. The field, I thought, was pretty strong. They had a lot of really good three-set matches. They had Kane Ishikori making his return to tour-level tennis after a long layoff, and he made it all the way to the semis. You had a, a final of Kevin Anderson and Sam Querrey, which was, I think, a quarterfinal at the U.S. Open last year, so not a, not a bad final for a 250 event. Had a lot of strong young American players. Uh, Hian Chung was supposed to play and I think is still recovering from the Australian Open, but he, he certainly would have strengthened the field. And I may be a little biased from having done this, but one of the interviews I did for my other podcast, Jeff mentioned 30 Love, was with Josh Ripple, who's the tournament director. And he is a really smart guy, and it's just clear from talking to him and has thought through a lot of the factors that go into to running a tournament. And I apologize for the motorcycle that people might be hearing right now on the show outside my window. Um, he is aware of some of the challenges. They're committed for 10 years, and Nassau Coliseum seems very excited to have them for 10 years. It's not every tournament that gets a 10-year commitment from a venue. That's certainly a strength. And they seem to have the right idea of which players to go after, where it's not just about abstractly who are the biggest names or just about giving all the wild cards to Americans, but it's about embracing the very international population in and around New York City and trying to get players who would appeal to many different demographics. So, for instance, he cited Dudi Sela, an Israeli who's in his 30s and um, maybe peaked in the top 30 or something like that, but certainly not one of the 
the top contenders on tour, but he has a passionate fan base in places where he plays that have a lot of Israelis or have a lot of Jews and certainly applies to the New York area. Chung, there's a very strong Korean community in and around New York City, so that was a smart move. So they're definitely thinking strategically, planning for the long term. They've set up a pretty nice tournament. And for me, as someone credentialed there, it was somewhat a plus that it wasn't as crowded as peak U.S. Open in that I could wander around and notice Nick Boletari standing by himself watching tennis and go up and talk to him for a while. So there, there's a little bit of that vibe you sometimes get around challengers where you can just wander around and talk to players and coaches and other dignitaries of the game, but this is clearly not a challenger-level event. It's got some really big names and is at you know a major arena that hosts major sporting events. So all in all, I think it was a pretty successful debut with some challenges and I think pretty smart people behind it. The other thing that I really struck me in talking to Josh is that he's also an executive vice president at GF Sports. He's a former agent himself. And this company, GF Sports, is really in the market now to acquire tennis events. They recently acquired Atlanta as well. They acquired this event when it was in Memphis and, according to him at least, tried to make it work before moving it to New York. And the idea of a company owning a few events and what potential that brings when they're all run by one company is somewhat exciting to me. I mean, I think one of the things you'll sometimes see at these smaller events is the downside of an event that happens once a year and the people who run it pretty much are not running major sporting events the rest of the time. So if you have a company that is is thinking more holistically about its multiple events and also making sure the events are not competing with each other and working in concert, I think there could be some downsides, but mostly I think it's a good news for U.S. tennis that they're committed, as they say, with any events they buy to keep them in the U.S., not necessarily in the same city, but at least in the U.S. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be excited about with with the New York Open. Well, that's great to hear. And, and it's interesting what you point out about the, the, the sort of challenger vibe without with something better than challenger-level competition. And that's that's a really tough balance to strike, but I think that's something that will would appeal to a lot of tennis fans. I mean, one thing that we know always appeals to tennis fans is the sort of mega event circus of the Grand Slams, but you can't really have that outside of the Slams and, and maybe some of the either really well-marketed or very historical Masters-level events. So the other ones have to have something else going for them. And while it is a more niche type fan who would enjoy going out to more of a clubby type of atmosphere, maybe more like the the, the feeling you get at an Eastbourne or a Birmingham on grass in the UK. Um, that's something that I think could could take some uh, take some casual fans and turn them into more rabid fans. And especially if they can figure out if the New York Open can figure out a way to get some of the casual fans from New York out out to the event just physically get them there to the Nassau Coliseum, then that would be huge. And it, it seems to me that if that's the venue that they're cho- choosing, as you pointed out at the outset of this discussion, that's just a, a major, major obstacle because there's there's so many uh, latent tennis fans or once-a-year tennis fans for the U.S. Open in New York City. But uh, most people wouldn't have even thought of, of doing what you did and uh, taking the Long Island Railroad and catching a cab to get out there. I and mean, I'm not sure if I would have even done that. And I think I qualify as a, a pretty big fan of the sport. Uh, 
but yeah, apart from that, it, it's encouraging to hear. And you make another really good point, or you pass along a, a, a really good point from the tournament director that it's not just about American players in the U.S. And that's something that Miami has always managed so well, embracing the the international nature of the sport and the huge international communities, especially South Americans and Central Americans there in Miami, to make it more than just an American event. That some of the most memorable matches ever in Florida, not just Miami, but also Davis Cup matches in Florida are the ones where the fans are behind someone other than an American, whether it's a Brazilian or Argentine, uh, Argentine or the, the, the Davis Cup tie, I think it was a few years ago, again with Booty Seller, where there were, were so many Israeli fans that they drowned out the American fans. Uh, and that, that's one of the great things about tennis in the U.S., even just that U.S. Open qualifying. In, I've been to several Alejandro Faya matches where the, the, the whole court is surrounded by Colombians. Uh, and sometimes you don't get that kind of enthusiasm, even for a local hero like a Query or an Isner or Donald Young or someone like that. So it's encouraging to see them them play that up because I, I think that sort of enthusiasm for players who might come back for three or four years in a row, especially if they have a deep run, uh, and then that becomes the story. It's you know last year's finalist Israeli Duty Sela comes back, or fan favorite comes back for for another campaign. That's the sort of thing that that manages to get placement in newspapers and, and radio talk shows and things like that that gets the more casual fans out there. So I, it seems like they're they're headed in the right direction in in many respects. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned Kane Shakori's comeback, that's something else we wanted to talk about. We, we talked about Federer and his scheduling a little bit and the fact that he basically just arrived back on tour and started winning again. And it wasn't totally a foregone conclusion, but he isn't someone who really needs to work his way back into form. But other players do. We saw Stan Wawrinka lose in the quarterfinals, I think, in Sofia last week. And um, other players have stayed injured for a long time, have struggled on their comebacks. I mean, Maria Sharapova, as as great as she once was, just lost to Monica Nicolescu. Uh, She's had a lot of pretty iffy losses over the course of her comeback. But Nishikori didn't take any wild cards to come back. The, the first thing he did was to play two challengers. And actually, in the first of those challengers, he, he lost in the first round. In the second challenger, he, he won the tournament. And I wonder what you think of that path. It's not something we see players do very much. You know, players are more likely to play, to dip down and play a challenger or two if they're struggling rather than coming back from injury. Most players of Nishikori's caliber typically just take a wild card. Maybe they come back at a 250 or a pair of 250s, but they don't go down to challengers. Do you think that's something that more players should be doing that could be beneficial to them? Yeah, I do. I think of Andre Agassi. I think for at least one of his comebacks from absence from the game, he came back through the challenger circuit. Uh, I in David Goffin's case, in 2014, he wasn't injured, but he pretty much had to go play some challengers because his ranking had fallen so much and swept through a bunch of them. It was a huge boost to his confidence. Kryanovich last year uh, had to go through the challengers because of where his ranking was and his wild card potential. And I think he ended the year with only six tour-level wins, four of them in Paris, something like that. But clearly the challenger circuit had helped him get into the shape he needed to be in to, to make that run and to finish the year with a career high ranking. So yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of pluses to it. It, it certainly 
would take someone like Nishikori, who's an international superstar and has, you know, Japanese press following him around wherever he goes, to go down to the challenger level. It's, it's a different level of hospitality, of fans, of kind of distance between players and fans. So I'm not sure it's for everyone's personality, but tennis-wise, it seems like a pretty good way to have very real tough matches, but against a slightly easier level of opponent. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I know, Carl, you're also a, a baseball fan from way back, so maybe you're thinking about this the same way I am, that in, in a lot of team sports, especially baseball, that's a, a very typical path returning from injury. I mean, it, it's more common than the alternative, I think, that if someone's out for a long time, they, they go play a couple games in, in somewhere in the minor league system. And it, it, it's something you can even count on. I mean, if you're a minor league season ticket holder somewhere in the middle of America, you can count on seeing maybe not a star, but one of your parent team's veterans show up at some point during the season. And it's a highlight. And it, that, that's another thing to going back to our discussion about the New York Open that, that might make some of the even smaller tournaments than that more appealing. Is if you know that every few years you're going to see a Nishikori or a Goffin, someone like that, who you think of as a star, but might be playing at a lower level for a little while. So I, I hope more players do that, and maybe Nishikori will inspire them to do that. Um, I have a hard time imagining Milos Ronic doing that when he comes back, but he, he does seem like someone who might need it. It's just to have a, a few easy matches, a little more relaxed atmosphere before he comes back and has to has to just be, be serving at 100% to be competitive at the, at the tour level. Yeah. Hard to also imagine Djokovic or Murray doing it, although who knows? Maybe it would it would help. Yeah, at at that level, it does seem more like two fifties serve as the rehab assignment, and yeah. even for Federer, he he's played Hotman Cup now a couple of seasons, and and that serves a similar purpose. Uh, but yeah, it would it would be pretty amazing if you saw Murray show up for like the Nottingham Challenger or something uh, to to kick off the grass court season. Now that I mentioned it, it's not the craziest idea because if, if someone like Murray did come back but not in time for clay season, then there are a couple of grass court challengers the first week before the tour switches over to grass. So yeah, get an extra week, yeah. Exactly. So I don't know whether whether Murray's timing would work out for that or maybe Ronich as well. He's another player who would count on having some big results on grass and maybe he would choose to play that as well. But that's an opportunity that is specific to the surface. So maybe even more valuable than something like what Nishikori has done. Although Nishikori really took advantage of the schedule as well, because he decided he wasn't ready for the Australian Open, but he was able to go play a rehab match in the middle of the Australian Open. So every slam has that, even if the surfaces don't line up exactly right. There are clay court challengers the second week of the uh, French Open as well, as well as that Nottingham or Manchester the second week of the French Open. So those opportunities are there, and it, for the most part, it's players who are struggling to go play those challengers. Uh, and Tomas Burdich has done that several times, but it seems like with more players injured and for a longer span of time, then maybe there are reasons for guys to to play those events more, even if they, they have a status that maybe they don't think is in line with playing challenger events. And that gives me a segue to a, a totally different player situation. We're going to skip over Serena Williams for a minute, but we will talk about Serena Williams after this. Um, is Marion Bartoli, who has announced that she's coming back. I, I just read a, a pretty interesting interview with her on a, a 
blog called Tennis Translations. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Carl, but uh, it's just tennistranslations.wordpress.com. No, I am. It's terrific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, way better than uh, Google Translate. <laughs> way better than Google Translate, absolutely. So, yeah, there's a handful of people who who translate. I think most of the ones I've seen there are from the French, but um, our friend Anna Mitrich has, has done several translations from Serbo-Croatian languages as well. So lots of valuable stuff there. And there was a long interview. Maybe it was from Lakeep. I'm not sure which, which French publication it started in, but it was a long interview with Bartoli. And one of the things she said was that she, she's just written off uh, coming back and playing challengers or the equivalent ITF events. She said she played those when she was 16. She was always a top 20 player when she was on the WTA. She doesn't feel like she ever needs to play those again. And if she does come back strong, she'll probably get enough wild cards at the outset that she won't have to. But she has to be looking at the experience of, of some similar players. I'm thinking specifically of Patty Schneider, who's been playing ITS for a few years now. She's a couple of years older than Bartoli, but she hasn't won more than maybe just a handful of matches at the tour level. And she's been playing well at the ITF level, but not well enough to get her ranking up for direct entry and tour events. So Bartoli is trusting that she's not going to find herself in that position. Or maybe she's just decided if she does, then then the comeback will be over. But it sounds like she's more serious about it than that. Do you think, Carl, uh, that, that Bartoli is going to be able to just slot back into the tour? Maybe not top 20, but it, is, is she someone who all these years removed from having to leave the tour after winning that Wimbledon title who could land herself back in the top 50? Well, I think without having seen her play, it it seems logical that she wouldn't be coming back and not coming back certainly to such a stacked event if she didn't think she had a shot. And she was, while well, she didn't spend maybe that much of her career in the top 10, she spent a ton of it in the top 20. She was just so consistent for so long. We've also seen especially on the women's side, a number of successful on-retirements in the last decade, including Kim Kleister's and Justine Hennett. No, Bartoli's been out for four and a half years. I think that's longer than Kleister's and Hennett were, but she's 33, which is younger than some of the top women now. I mean, I'm mainly thinking of Serena and Venus Williams, and it's certainly possible that their examples do not translate, but... I would give her a shot at top 50 only because I would be surprised if she were coming back without thinking she had a shot at it. Now, I think you said something like she was forced to retire. I thought that it was purely her decision to retire. Was there a, a health problem that caused her to retire? I thought there was. I, I could be wrong, though. I wasn't following WTA then as closely as I am now. Uh, but I, I I believe that it was it was an injury and maybe some personal issues that it kept her from coming back. She she said repeatedly in, in several interviews that I've read that she feels like she has unfinished business. Uh, and obviously people can't change their mind over the years. You can think your business is finished when when it's time to go, and then a couple of years later you realize that it's not, especially when, as you point out, you see all these players in their early 30s who are still having so much success. But, yeah, we'll, we'll have to... Yeah, so I just looked that. it up, and I, I think it's... I think we're both right. Probably you're more right. I mean, she said at the time that she had so many um, injuries that were just bothering her all the time. And the way I remembered it and, and the way she said it, it, it read to me more like 
I've just decided it's not worth it anymore, not I couldn't play anymore. And deciding it's not worth it anymore when you're carrying four injuries and in constant pain is a completely understandable decision. Some people decide to keep playing even with those problems because every player is carrying some injuries, although she sounds like she had more extreme ones. I think what's also emerged since then is that in the years since retiring, she dealt with uh, some eating disorders and body image issues and I think an abusive relationship that fed into both of those. So I think part of this comeback is coming back from that and feeling like she wants to you know, embrace her athletic side again and, and, and show that she can still compete at the highest level. So I, I think that's a pretty wonderful reason to come back. And for that reason alone, uh, I'm excited. I'm also excited because she's a Grand Slam champion and a long-time top-ten player and, and a pretty unusual player, too. Exactly. I'm surprised you didn't mention that earlier because I know both of us are, are always interested in players who manage to make unorthodox styles work. And there really isn't – that seems to be a style that is dying a little bit, that the, the two hands on both sides uh, never been predominant, clearly. But um, but I don't think that Luigi Hardesca is, is having the single success that she was for a few years. So – there's not a lot of double-handing going on in in women's tennis these days. So, well, the interesting yeah, I was just looking at her tennis abstract, abstract page and seeing that she's listed as two-handed backhand and thinking that it's a shame that you don't have a category for two-handed forehand, but it probably just doesn't quite come up enough, despite the fact yeah. that Santoros and uh, Monica Celeses. Yeah, and the, and the Jan Michael Gamble, one of yep. my personal favorites. Um, so, so yeah, the, Bartoli will make for an interesting case coming back in Miami. I know we're, we're all going to be watching that one. The, the cautionary tale, in addition to Patty Schneider for Bartoli, is that coming back is hard. And that, that's one thing that we've seen time and time again. There are these few players who make it look so easy. And you mentioned Kleister and Hennon, and of course Federer comes in this category. But it seems like for every one of those top players who comes back as if they never left, there are more who come back and can never get back to where they were. And I'm thinking specifically now of Maria Sharapova, who has who's been back for quite a while now. Um, she's not a full year since I think it was the, just before the French Open last year that she made her return. So coming up on a full year. And she's still outside the top 40. She's been able to play pretty much the schedule she's wanted to play since after the grass court season. She's had some success. She's, she's won, a, won a smaller event last fall, um, upset some good players. But if you look at her losses, even even recently, the, the, there's some, some matches she shouldn't be losing if she's anything like the Sharapova of the past. I mean, losing to Sinyakova is not that great in Shenzhen. Uh, I think we can give her a pass for losing to Kerber in Australia. But a lot of her losses towards the end of 2017 aren't the sort of thing that made you think, Oh, she's on the path back to the top five. Certainly not the path back to winning the slam. Do you think that I'm I'm passing judgment on Sharapova too quickly that she could still be back in the top in, in the top five in maybe six months or a year from now? Or do you think that what we've seen so far is is a better indication of what Sharapova is going to face for the rest of her career, which is being being on the outside of that inner circle that she used to be so concretely in? So, Jeff, I am not ready to write off Sharapova yet, and I'll give you one subjective reason and two maybe somewhat more objective reasons. The subjective reason is 
as I mentioned before, at the New York Open, I was able to just wander by Nick Politeri and start talking to him and record him for a 30 Love episode. And one point he made a couple of times is, do not count out Maria Sharapova. So I'm not going to count out Maria Sharapova because the man has coached 10 number ones. Two maybe more objective points. One, she's had some injuries since she came back last year, which on the one hand bolsters your point that it's hard to come back and maybe means she'll continue to struggle with injuries. But on the other hand, makes me think we haven't yet seen the best we're going to see from her. And when she has been healthy, she's had some pretty exciting results. I mean, she she beat Halep, who was playing quite well in the first round of the U.S. Open last year and, and advanced to the fourth round where she lost a tough match to Sevastova. She's made some semis. She won Tianjin last year. So I think... I think we should give her some more time. I mean, at least give her 12 months. We we don't quite know what her ranking would be with a full 12 months, and maybe if she does well at Indian Wells, Miami, she'll be back into the top 30, maybe start getting seated more often. It, it can take time to get your ranking back just because you are never seated, and from what I can tell, she has still not been seated at any events because she's mostly been playing tough events and just doesn't quite have her ranking up high enough. So I'd give her a little longer. Well, and we, we certainly will, and I would expect that her current ranking of 41 is not an indication of, of where her peak post-doping suspension is going to be. That's certainly improve on that, if only because she will have the full 12 months, as you say. Uh, I, I am more skeptical, even taking into account what what you say or what you pass on from Nick Volatari. You hear that a lot, not just from people as knowledgeable as, about Sharapova as Nick, that it, you don't count on Maria Sharapova. Anyone who's, who's ever watched a free setter with, with commentary on Maria Sharapova, the commentators are always saying stuff like that. She's a, she at least has the, gives the perception of being the men, one of the mentally strongest players on tour maybe ever. And she, she wins matches. She doesn't look like she should win. She comes back against enormous odds. And even her, her body language is just shouting, I am fighting so hard right now. And that's one of the things that makes, that makes her so compelling to watch. Um, which which is great for tennis. It means she's, I think she's always going to win some matches that her ranking doesn't suggest she will. I mean, your example of the Simona Howard match in the U.S. Open is, is the first point in her favor there. On the other hand, I've, I've watched a handful of her matches since she came back, uh, and the one I remember most is her final in Tianjin against Arena Sabalenka. And... You mentioned that Tianjin title as part of the case for Sharapova. I, to me, those WT internationals are barely two challengers. I mean, that Tianjin path involved beating Irina Camilla Begu, Magda Lynette, Stephanie Vogela, and uh, Peng Shui before Sabalenka. So, I mean, a little better than a challenger, but not much. And she had to dig really deep to beat Sabalenka. I mean, Sabalenka is an interesting player, a great prospect. It's the ball really hard. But if Sharapova is anywhere close to the top form she's going to be in post-suspension, then she shouldn't have to dig for anything against Sabalenka. If, if she didn't have that don't-ever-count-me-out mentality, then she would have lost that match. And I think some of the other wins we've seen so far fall into the same category. The, the Howlett match was, was quite close, and a mentally weaker player probably would have lost that one. Uh, when she beat Sevastova, actually another really compelling match in the first round of Beijing after that, went to 9-7 in a final set tiebreak. 
that was another one where you could tell she won because she was mentally stronger and not because she was really the better player. And if you can just barely edge out Anastasia Savakova a couple weeks after losing to her, then all due respect to Anastasia Savakova, who I like a lot, you're not going back to the top 10. That's what I'm seeing so far. And unless she can build a lot more than she's built in her comeback so far, I think we're going to see a top 20 Sharapova, maybe, but not a top 10. It's a bit harsh on Sevastova. I'm surprised. I mean, Sevastova could be in the top 10 before long, but hey, your mileage may be. She could be. And like I say, I, I like her a lot, but uh, I think Sharapova should be beating her. Um, but one other comeback story I want to talk about, and the biggest one on the WT Tour, Serena Williams. We just saw her come back and play a doubles match in Fed Cup, but no singles. And we don't really know the timetable yet, do we? Uh, she, she's not, she hasn't announced a, a singles return. I don't think she's even committed to playing Roland Garros yet. Do you know, Carl, any more about she's when... entered in Indian Wells. I think a lot of people are doubtful she'll make it, but I think technically that's her return. On the other hand, she was entered in the Australian Open, and and the tournament director said with assurance that he expected her to be there, and, and she wasn't. So, yeah, I... I think I think it's not worth speculating. It, it could be quite a while. And some people, at least, who saw that doubles match, that Fed Cup doubles match, thought it meant she needed a lot more work. I was not as convinced. But, again, it probably comes down even as much as or more than her form to what approach she wants to take. Does she feel comfortable entering tournaments knowing that she's far from her best, or does she want to do that kind of recovery to, of her form off the out of the spotlight and, and without the pressure of, of people saying, oh, you're, um, you're, you're a big disappointment. Why are you back? Maybe, maybe that would be her preference. Do you think there's any kind of possibility that she would come back and, and perform at such a low level that people would respond like that, that she would be that much of a disappointment? I mean, this is Serena Williams we're talking about. You think it's possible that she would come back and and be that weak? Well, she didn't look great in that Fed Cup match. I mean, she came back for Fed Cup to make herself available, which which will also help with her eligibility for the Olympics. And she agreed to play the doubles match, and she was she was not Serena Williams of old, which doesn't mean she couldn't be again. But I think her willingness even to do that uh, shows that maybe she is. She's willing to make herself vulnerable, so to speak. I mean, yeah, it could, it could be that she is okay taking some losses. I mean, she certainly – I think we now think of her as, in the past when she's come back, immediately dominating, but that hasn't always been the case. Like, I remember some some tough events right after times that she had to miss because of, of injury. Uh, she She wasn't always immediately – Serena Williams, Serena Williams. I'm I'm thinking of one year when she came back before Wimbledon and had some rough results. It, it, you know, she she's had so many absences because she has had so many health struggles. It's hard to remember all the examples. But she, yeah, she's she's at times sometimes maybe feeling 100% ready for, and she will uh, basically leave the event after a match or two, treat the event as an opportunity to get a couple of matches in, but without immediately contending. I'm looking here at 2012. She hadn't played since the U.S. Open. I don't know if she was specifically injured or just taking some time away from tennis, and she she withdrew from Brisbane 
after the first two rounds. She lost in the fourth round pretty badly to Makarova at the Australian Open. Uh, she lost to Wozniacki in straight sets at Miami. So she she wasn't really playing like number one or even like top ten for her first few events back. Um, in 2011, she came back just before Wimbledon, and she um, lost in the second round at Eastbourne. She lost in the fourth round at Wimbledon to Bartoli, by the way. Uh, you know, and Wimbledon being one of her best events. So, yeah, I think I think she would be okay with coming back and losing some matches that she wouldn't normally lose if it means it gives her an opportunity to get some matches under her belt. Oh, that's interesting. I, it's easy to forget about the few times that Selena did lose matches since they are so few and far between, and as it has been several years since it happened. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting perspective to, to keep in mind that she could come back before she's really ready. And we really don't know what, what to expect. We don't have a clear timetable from, from her own mouth. Um, obviously, the physical challenges of of coming back from pregnancy, especially in your late 30s, are, are pretty uncharted territory for tennis players. Even some of the other players who have uh, had a baby and come back and played well, they were several years younger than Serena. And most players who are most tennis players who are having a baby when Serena did, they're, they're long retired. So, so it's uncharted territory, which is pretty paradoxically charted territory for the Williams sisters. I mean, they're constantly doing things that no one else has ever done. So um, certainly there's the possibility that Serena will come back soon and be great, but obviously there's a, a different possibility as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that pans out. Um, yeah, it certainly yeah. also shows the um, the different challenges between men and women coming back from having a kid, like a, a would-be dad like Andy Murray, I think two years ago or three years ago at the Australian Open, being able to just fly back right after the final, be, be there for the birth, be back on tour pretty soon after. It's definitely, like in all of society, a different price career-wise that women pay compared to men when it comes to parenthood. Federer, when he missed some of 2016, it wasn't because of parenthood, although I guess he could blame it on giving his twins a bath. But, you know, he has four kids and is able to travel around and play tennis just fine. So it's certainly certainly different rules in tennis and in life for for moms and dads. Yeah, and it, it is interesting to watch how that, that is steadily changing because there, there's been one, one great story from following because it's, it's uh, a big story in Norway is in the Winter Olympics, Merit Jorgen, a, a cross-country skier, she just tied the all-time record with her 13th Olympic medal. She's 37. She's also coming back from, from having a kid and Clearly, the physical challenges of cross-country skiing are different than the physical challenges of tennis. Uh, the, the schedule is very different and demanding in a different way. But, um, but that, that's actually similar to Serena's situation in a lot of ways that you won't find as many comps for in the tennis world itself because it's, it's so rare for players to be playing at her level uh, at the age that Serena was when she left the tour. So... Uh, Lots of, lots of question marks there, and you have to look pretty far for, for comps for some, someone like what Serena has done and what she would do when she comes back. Um, now, b- before we go, since I wanted to keep this at about an hour and we're quickly running out of time, um, lots more stuff to talk about that we're not going to get to. Dominic's team just won a title. Petra Kvitova won in, in Doha, which is 
great to see her continuing her own comeback, yet, yet another one. Um, but one question I wanted to ask you, Carl, we, we didn't do a podcast immediately before the Australian Open or immediately after because I was completely off the grid and I, I have, have yet to even touch up and see a, a single point of Australian Open action. But I've looked enough at the draws and the news coverage to know that some really crazy stuff went on. And I, I was getting occasional updates um, from, from email that uh, imagine my surprise to have my first update from the Australian Open be that that Kyle Edmund and Hun Chung were in the semifinals. Uh, if, if they told me Elise Mertens were, was in the semifinal as well, I would have been just a shock. But <laughs> you had some some really big surprises there. I mean, kind of Sandrin getting as far as he did. Uh, some of the upsets were just, just mind-boggling when, when you think about it. So, Carl, you were presumably experiencing a much closer to real time and in a lot better detail and hopefully watching plenty of matches. In, for just our last few minutes, what do you think the biggest surprises were from this year's Australian Open? Well, if we're sticking just to tennis, so we won't talk about some of the off-court stuff about Sandgren, which you can hear plenty about on, on my 30 Love show, which probably tends to get more political than this one. Um, I think still Sandgren has to be the biggest shock even though the individual results make some sense when you think of who he beat. So he did knock off uh, two top players in Dominic Thiem and Stan Wawrinka, and Wawrinka was still actually in the top ten at that point because his points from the semis in 2017 hadn't come off. So an incredible run for a guy who had two tour-level wins, none at Grand Slams before the Australian Open, to make it to the quarters. I mean, winning any matches at a Grand Slam would have been a first for him. To win four in a row, two of them against top ten guys. And Vavrinka won easy, an easy win. So so that's pretty shocking. Vavrinka was not himself, so you can write that one off. Dominic Thiem is not himself off clay, so you can somewhat write him, write him off. But even if you say, okay, they weren't top ten, they were top 50, or maybe in Vavrinka's case, top 100, it was still a pretty... Shocking, shocking run. And Chung actually handled Sandgren fairly easily in the quarters, but all the sets were closely contested, and, and Chung was playing like probably a top 20 or top 30 talent at that at that tournament and had just won the next gen, and people had their eyes on him for a while. Kyle Edmund, people have had their eyes on for a while. So those I found less surprising. I mean, certainly Edmund knocking off um, – knocking off Dimitrov was a surprise, but Dimitrov has had disappointing results at big tournaments throughout his career at times, so maybe less surprising. Elise Mertens, I mean, she she looked good. I, I think you're probably more shocked than I am. I, she, she had also had some good results coming into the, to the event. So, uh, yeah, I, to me, Sandgren, who, as far as I can tell, hasn't won a tour-level match since the Australian Open, is the biggest surprise. I mean, Mertens had just won Hobart, and she made the semis of Luxembourg last year. Neither of them really strong fields, but until she knocked off Svitolina, who looked really nervous in the quarter, she didn't have that tough a draw in Australia either. I think in both cases, the surprises generally either got past players who weren't playing near their ranking or had somewhat easy draws. So, you know, in Chung's case, he knocked off Djokovic, a six-time Australian Open champ, but Djokovic was clearly not fully healthy and, in fact, you know, announced he was leaving the sport again for a while after that match. So, yeah, I just keep coming back to Sandgren and a run that, if not for all the political elements of his background and things he'd said online overshadowing it, 
was one of the most feel-good American men's tennis stories at a Grand Slam in a really long time. Yeah, the interesting thing about Sandgren, he's a surprise both in what he'd done before and what he did after. I mean, the first match he played after the Australian Open was to go to Buenos Aires and play qualifying, uh, and, and he lost in the first round of qualifying there. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty big shift from the Australian Open quarterfinal. Uh, my emphasis on Merton isn't about her results because I mean, she has had some some good results. She's won a ton of matches in the last year. Her ranking has absolutely rocketed up the, the table. But I just don't see it, especially on a hard court. I, I've, I've watched, I don't know, probably 12 or 15 different matches, including all the finals. And I just don't understand how she's winning so many matches. I mean, she seems like someone who, uh, really consistent, pretty smart player, someone who should make it to the top 30 and be sort of a pest at that level. And maybe, maybe okay, an, an absolute peak would be back at that Anastasia Sebastian level. And I guess Sebastia has had similar runs at the U.S. Open. So maybe that's where the player does belong in a grand slam semifinal now and then. But, it, given where Mertens was even just a year ago, uh, it, it's astonishing to me that, that she put together the run that she did. Um, the, the other player I wanted to talk about and get your, get your opinion on, Carl, was Angelique Kerber, who also had a huge surprise run in the Australian Open and almost knocked off Simona Halep uh, with a, a 9-7 third set, I believe. And... I think a lot of people have written her off in the last year, and some of her results have lended credence to writing her off. But I think it's something you and I talked about on a number of episodes last year, that we didn't want to go too far in, in just assuming Kerber was done. The, most of what took her to number one and two grand titles in the past is still there. Maybe the tactics changed a little bit for the worst. But do you think that Kerber is, Played out back to where she was. Do you think Kerber's going to be more of a threat this year after seeing her performance in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited, which really just makes 2017 more puzzling because we don't, we haven't really heard anything to make us think that she had some sort of major injury last year and she'd been coming off a year that saw her win two Grand Slams, make a whole bunch of other big finals, including another Grand Slam final, and just generally look like a really solid number one and then suddenly the calendar turned and she was instantly not herself and the calendar turned again and she was back to almost 2016 form certainly not quite 2016 form but I mean she had a couple match points against Halep even so I I'm pretty encouraged and it's not just that she had good results but she was playing like I remembered her at her best, just really chasing things down, but then also being aggressive when when she should be, uh, really making good decisions. And I think that was something that was missing last year. It doesn't make sense to me that, that just having a new year could have such a dramatic transformation, but players do talk about Australia that way as a kind of rebirth. And I think a lot of players targeted this year's Australian Open for that. And Kerber... I probably had the biggest, even though people weren't talking about her in the same way because it wasn't that she was absent last year, it's just that she wasn't very good last year or very good by her standards. Whereas so many players are actually coming from a long layoff and most of them disappointed in Australia or maybe at least disappointed on realistically high expectations for a comeback set by Roger Federer in 2017. But she 
she was tremendous and yeah, could have could have won the tournament. But by the way, a quick note on Sandgren too before I forget, since we were talking about the the value of challengers and I mentioned Kryanovich last year. Sandgren played I think twenty challengers last year, maybe most of them in the US or at least half of them or so in the US and made a bunch of finals and semis and and really got a ton of match play and a ton of wins and, a, and a, I'm sure a lot of confidence, but also just great tactics from doing it. So that's a, that's another player for now, I think in his case he really didn't have a choice with his ranking, but there were probably some weeks he could have at least played 250s or tried to qualify, and instead he played challengers and racked up points and wins. So another another vote for that approach. Well, unfortunately, Carl, you just gave me three or four new directions to go in right when I'm trying to wrap this all up. But, I mean, let me try to hit on a couple things. Um, since you mentioned Tengren and Kroenovich in the context of, of maybe playing a lot of challenges to, to give you the match confidence to do better at a, at a higher level, I wonder how predictive it really is. Kroenovich won, I think, six challenges last year. He had just an incredible year at that level. And Tengren, as you point out, uh, won a lot of matches at that level as well. And it's, whenever someone does emerge from the, the challenger level, the maybe 150 to 200 in the world standard, then it's easy to point to their wins at that level and say, that's where they got their confidence. This is how they developed to the player that ultimately made the Australian Open quarterfinal as a big surprise of the tournament. Um, it's really easy to do that in retrospect. It's really hard to pick out those guys if you're looking at a year's worth of challenger results and saying, well, this guy won six tournaments, therefore he's going to make a final in Paris or any, any even a lower, uh, a less specific prediction than that or someone, some, something like Tangren's result and say, this guy's ready to make a grand slam breakthrough because there's so many challengers. Um, there's so many guys, especially Tangren's age, 26.5, according to livetennis.eu. Um, he, I'll bet you could find five guys last year with similar challenges results to Sandgren who didn't even make the main draw or lost in the first round of Australia. So I'm I'm not intending to say that you're emphasizing that as wrong, Carl, because it's it's not necessarily. And a lot of players will make similar comments about the value of winning at the challenger level. But on the other hand, if you're looking at it from an analytical perspective and forecasting who the next guy's going to be like, it's a lot harder to do. Yeah, and um, this the part of the point of the show is for me to say something just completely ad hoc and then for you to go test it. So please go test it. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you had more than one point today. I did. It is, it is hilarious, though, that, that this is such a niche podcast that you call Bialik are the non-analytical one. <laughs> uh, this is, this or the lazy one. Yeah, this is someone who wrote a weekly column for years called the Numbers Guy, and somehow, somehow I'm the analytical one of the two of us. So the other thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap this one up is is a comment you made in our outline that we're not going to get to so much in this episode. But you made the comment that our women starting to be more consistent at the top of the game, and you listed I'm assuming this is the current top ten of Halep, Wozniacki, Kvitova, Marusa, Julia Gerges, Kerber, Svitolina, Ostapenko. Carolina Pushkova and Caroline Garcia. And you also mentioned Mertens and Madison Keys. You are knocking at that door. You're hoping Venus Williams puts herself back in, back in that group. Um, I would put Ashley Barty in that conversation mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it's something I don't, I don't disagree with you because it does seem a little more solid than it has been. 
But we're talking about a quote-unquote consistent group at the top of we're up to 14 women now, and we're not we're not mentioning Serena, we're not mentioning Azarenka, who's hopefully going to play Indian Wells, although maybe not anything else given her legal issues in California. Uh, we're not mentioning Sharapova, who's a threat in every match she plays. We're not mentioning Johanna Conta. Uh, so it, you could, I think you could make an argument for 20 women as this group that's consistent at the top. And when you get to that point, then I think we're stretching the meaning of consistent to its absolute breaking point. Um, for, for people who want to see the sort of ATP Big Four dominance, you're not going to get it right now on the WTA. That much is, is for sure. Just looking at even the top five or top six, it's just it's, it's too much in flux for that. But to me, it's it's great because to me, every single one of these women, with the possible exception of Elise Mertens, who I've already mentioned, uh, could be a could could develop as a as having a tremendous all-time great level year. Maybe that's a stretch of people you go get to, but all all of these are potential greats or past greats, Grand Slam winners or potential future multiple Grand Slam winners, and then how things go. Um, but we have no idea who they are, and that's tremendously exciting. You, you mentioned looking at the Dubai draw for next next week and thinking, no, this is a pretty weak draw for an ATP 500. But if you look at any WTA premier draw, even if only four of these women we're talking about show up, you have an interesting tournament. In St. Petersburg a couple weeks ago, was that, that's probably one of the weakest uh, WTA premieres over the course of the year, just from where it sits geographically and, and regarding the schedule and its position in the season. But Wozniacki went and played, although she lost early. Kvitova won the tournament to the Gurgis and lost to her in the semifinal. You have a ton of interesting matches at a tournament that in some years in the past would have been kind of a disappointment. And I think we can expect that throughout the whole year, that even if the entire top five, whoever the top five that is, is missing, you could have some really great matches with some, some excellent players that has has consequences that go into slams and the year-end championships and all the stuff that makes the, the whole season compelling. So Maybe consistent as a stretch, but but to me, compelling is the word to use with with all these women who who could play really well in any given week. Yeah, and I I think what what I'm getting at is well, first of all, the men don't have anything close to big four dominance now, and in general, tennis never has big four dominance. That period I think already looks like, and certainly will look like in hindsight in a few years, just an aberration when they were dominating everything. But what was key about that period was that they were frequently enough making it late into tournaments that we got to see them play each other a ton, and that was incredibly exciting. And what I'm getting at here is that I think not only could one or two of them get hot in any given week and and really show great tennis, but that enough of them are playing consistently at these events that if there are enough of them in the draw, we're going to see them play each other. And that was absent for a lot of last year. We didn't get a lot of these matchups. And there's so much lamenting that there isn't a great rivalry in the women's game right now. And I think there's a potential for some. I mean, the Kvitova-Mugurusa final in Doha today was fantastic. And, in fact, was being televised at the diner where I was eating breakfast in Queens, which was a sign that tennis is alive. So, yeah, I think just being able to see more marquee matchups late in tournaments because more of these women are consistently beating the next crop, the next uh, tier, I guess that that's what I am excited about. Yeah, and I'm 
I'm excited about it too. It, it will be interesting to see how that sort of prediction stands up in a year because yeah. some of the names on that list would have been crazy to put there a year ago. I mean, Ostapenko was outside the top 30, I think. Caroline Garcia was still waiting for a big breakthrough that has always seemed to be uh, another year away. Uh, Julia Gerges would have seemed like an insane person to put on this list. Uh, 14 months ago, Elise Mertens had, I don't know, she might not have even been in the top 100, and here she is, grand slam semifinalist and, and solid in the top 20. So, there are lots of, lots of fun stuff to watch in WTA, and, and as is often the case when we spend most of an episode talking about the men, I feel like we're, we're giving them a short trip. So, probably next week we'll come back with, with the Dubai women's draw to talk about, um, with, with a ton of interesting things having happened there. You point out in our notes, Carl, that it's a really great draw for the women in Dubai, even with um, Simona Howell injured again and missing that week. Still, still so many potential fun matchups to watch. So, we have a lot to talk about there. Um, hopefully, we will take less than five weeks for epi- our next episode of the podcast. Um, we'll get back on a more more regular schedule for all of you, our devoted listeners. So. Let's wrap it up there, Carl. Thank you, as always, for joining me. My pleasure. And and thanks for listening, everyone, and hopefully we will see you next week.